For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, not bringing you an energy transition. In its place, I offer the latest readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up newsletter and the usual pitch for you to subscribe to the latter and make a pledge in support of the former. Because we tell you things like that even European politicians are waking up to the fact that this energy transition is all transition and no energy. According to the Wall Street Journal, French President Emmanuel Macron called for a regulatory break on environmental matters in Europe, end quote, during a speech, quote, to a room full of industrial executives on how to reverse deindustrialization and revive French manufacturing, end quote. Whoa, you mean now you don't want deindustrialization? Germany is also spoiling the EU party along similar lines by demanding more production of natural gas rather than less, although its chancellor continues to prate about an economic miracle by which he means a government-driven transition to alternative fuels. A bit less surprisingly, perhaps, the Italian government is also, quote, pushing back on an array of initiatives aimed at greening the economy, arguing that local business can ill afford previously agreed transition goals, end quote. Note that agreed doesn't mean the affected people actually had a say, though. Meanwhile, the reliably frivolous Jerry Butts tweets, quote, the energy transition is going to be bumpy part 11 billion, end quote, as if people like him had been telling us so all along, rather than promising the opposite. But in the United States, as well as in Europe, the government has managed to spend vast sums, and in the case of the United States, also trigger a worldwide subsidy and tariff war. But, as for actual results, a recent Energy Information Administration study, Annual Energy Outlook 2023, called a narrative for some postmodern reason, dressed up with a lot of pretty pictures, the message that, basically, nothing would change by 2050. See, there's a lot of talk of a transition, and there's a lot of enthusiasm for it. There is just no actual transition. Also in the newsletter from the Your Map is on Fire file, we note that Britain's Met Office turned the country dark orange to signal 24.3 degrees Celsius. As David Birch commented, quote, I can only imagine when the mercury hits 35, end quote. We're guessing they'll have little gif flames. Then from the You Have No Idea file, the Canadian Treasury Board claims it is not possible to find out how many Canadian public servants work from home. But if the question is, where does every molecule of CO2 in the country come from and what does it do? Hey, Prime Minister Trudeau knows all and sees all. And from the Enough Gall to be Divided in Three Parts file, Canada's Liberal Federal Ministry of Natural Resources, used to be the Environment Minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, blaves evil troll former Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper for the country not building liquid natural gas export facilities because his lax regulatory regime cost megaprojects the social license that would supposedly allow them to be built if Wilkinson's own administration didn't find some way to scupper every single one of them. In the newsletter, we also note that another place where the climate scare is starting to scare people, but not in the intended way, is when it comes to finance and ESG. Turning corporations into organs of the non-existent transition is increasingly clearly not just fun and games involving visionary statements and inspiring ads. It risks bringing our way of life crashing down, starting with the retirement of people whose savings are at risk from wacky investment priorities. Thus, the Wall Street Journal editorializes about some municipal workers in New York City, which is not exactly a hotbed of reaction, but they're suing their public pension funds for gambling their golden years on green nonsense. Those with antiquated views of the capitalist system may not realize that public sector pensions are now amongst the biggest shareholders in a modern economy, including the American one and the Canadian and many others. In this case, the New York City Employees Retirement System, the Teachers Retirement System of the City of New York, and the Board of Education Retirement System of the City of New York, between them manage about 150 
billion dollars, which is probably more than you do, unless you are, say, the Cana the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. That's a crown corporation established in 1997 that plays with over half a trillion dollars in Canadian state-extracted supposed retirement savings and has expanded from a minimally staffed prudent passive investor to a massive bloated gambler. And now, a word from our sponsor. And that's you. Because at the Climate Discussion Nexus, we're dependent upon support from our viewers and our readers. Please go to our donate page, make a one-time pledge, or if you can, a monthly one. I'm not talking a lot of money, though. If you've got it, we'll take it. $2 a month, $3, $5. That's the sustaining funding that we need to produce these videos on our newsletter. And now, back to me. But back to New York City. Obviously, public sector unions there aren't the monopoly guy in the top hat. They're not Ebenezer Scrooge. They may be even more feverishly left-wing than former Mayor Bill de Blasio, though that wouldn't be easy. As the Wall Street Journal explains, de Blasio, quote, led this climate socialism in 2018 when he declared that city pension plans would have to divest fossil fuel-related assets within five years to show the city is leading the fight against climate change, end quote. Because, of course, it's no good leading the way if you don't get to thank God that you're not like other people in a very public forum. Thus, quote, our first-in-the-nation divestment is literally putting money where our mouth is when it comes to climate change, Mr. de Blasio crowed. However, two pension funds refused at the time, that was the police and the firefighters, on the grounds that that proverb is about your own money, and that it wasn't de Blasio's money or even the pension fund's money. A police pension fund trustee made a profound observation about ca how capitalism really works instead. Quote, The money in the pension fund does not belong to us, nor to the controller, nor to the mayor. It belongs to the active and retired police officers who have worked and sacrificed to earn their pensions, end quote. And as the journal also explained, quote, New York law and regulation impose strict fiduciary duties on trustees of such funds. Plans are required to invest for the exclusive benefit of the participants and beneficiaries and with care, skill, prudence, and diligence. State courts have ruled that trustees owe a duty of undivided and undiluted loyalty to retirees and workers, end quote. If the courts make a similar ruling again, this particular sort of irresponsible risk-taking will be terminated at once, at least in New York City. If not, the very real possibility exists that these trustees will squander workers' assets betting on green and leave a huge hole in their lives, the public accounts, or both. So, wherever you are, beware. If the government gets hold of your money to spend on its priorities, not yours, and according to its notions of prudence, not yours, you probably want to have your lawyer on speed dial. In the newsletter, we also thank Steve Malloy for drawing our attention to a 2015 posting by the All-In on Man-Made Climate Change National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the United States asking why global warming appeared to stop since the turn of the century. And then just when they had an answer all worked out that said, look, the theory is right and the warming is happening even if it's not, the warming started up again, requiring an update and then another to keep backfilling the story. But nothing can get around the key point. Atmospheric CO2 continued to rise. Indeed, it rose faster than at any point since 1850, yet the increase in temperature stopped. All the other stuff that they said doesn't matter when it comes to climate just refused not to matter when it comes to climate. Because carbon dioxide is not the control knob on the global thermostat, it never was, and it never will be. We also had fun in this newsletter noting that part of the effect, if not the intent, of climate alarmism has been to make people nervous wrecks including particularly, it seems, alarmists themselves. But, as the old saying has it, people need to put their money where their mouths are. 
And thus it is that retailers are hailing the return of summer in the Northern Hemisphere, not with cries of anguish, offers of chilly cellars or vacation packages to cold countries. Instead, we're getting emails saying to get your grill on fire that's Canadian Tire, and sizzle up with a hot promo inside with a fire logo and a beach umbrella, and that's Walmart. You see, even woke corporations can't help noticing that hot weather's good. In the newsletter, we also continue our tour of the new clientele analysis of the IPCC's AR6 report, looking this week at their look at the IPCC's latest hockey stick. CDN readers and viewers know that in 2001, the IPCC's third assessment report became notorious for highlighting the Michael Mann hockey stick. As we showed in our Hide the Decline video, which has nearly 400,000 views, so if you haven't seen it yet, you're missing the fun, the IPCC was determined to erase the medieval warm period and present a nice tidy consensus, even if it required fiddling the data and rushing an unproven chart into print. After the hockey stick was busted, the IPCC backed off and didn't put another one into their next two reports. But now, 20 years later, they're back at it, and this time, the handle's twice as long. But, as the Clintel team shows, it's just as dubious and required just as much subversion of the review process as before. The first problem, notes the Clintel team, is that the graph in question wasn't in the peer-reviewed literature when the first draft of the IPCC report went out to review. It was in revision for submission to a journal, which means that the IPCC set aside its own rules about only using material published in peer-reviewed journals. And another problem, just as in the 2001 case, was that there have been multiple proxy reconstructions in the literature that show a lot more variability than this Pages 2K version, as the Clintel team shows in this comparison chart. The red and green lines are from other research groups, and they were left out. The one line used by the IPCC was the white one encased in grey. Mind you, if the other authors had wanted the fame and glory of having their work highlighted by the IPCC, all they had to do was learn to hide the variations and the uncertainty. The Clintel team also document how even the terms medieval warm period and little ice age were expunged from the IPCC report after the close of peer review. They went down the same memory hole where many a politically incorrect Soviet politician went. Speaking of things that didn't go down the memory hole, CDN readers and viewers know that every time alarmist activists and climate journalists we repeat ourselves, need scary headlines to grab clicks, the Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica can be melted for the purpose. The idea is that as the downstream Thwaites ice shelf disintegrates into the hotting seas around Antarctica, the upstream Thwaites Glacier will tumble in after it, since the lower shelf is supposedly all that's holding the glacier in place, and this plunge will raise global sea levels by 10 feet or so in about 20 minutes. But this time, the alarmists may find their fingers frozen at the keyboard, because a new study has re-examined the role that the Thwaites shelf plays in buttressing the upstream Thwaites glacier, and it concludes that it basically plays no role. So, melting of the so-called Doomsday Glacier won't cause the Doomsday Glacier to move anywhere, and would at most raise sea levels by a few millimeters, which isn't very scary. Now, speaking of Antarctica, this year's Polar Bear Club dip into the CO2Science.org archive involves a study of glacier change and sensitivity to climate in East Antarctica, where it's not even clear if the East Antarctic ice sheet is growing, shrinking, or just sitting there. However, according to this study, it's just sitting there. Climate change has had no measurable effect on a thousand kilometers of Antarctic coastline over nearly half a century. So, for the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I'm not transitioning. (laughs) 